Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Only thing I'm plugging is Forgotten Seasons. Welcome back, Forgotten Seasons. J-Mac, man, we recorded a couple days ago. You, you, you were struggling. I know your back was out. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing better out here on the West Coast. Luckily, it's some warm weather that, you know, doesn't quite get into my spine like that. But, you know, I pushed through. I made it through, Dylan. We made it through. Game seven. Game seven vibes. Yes, sir. We we don't mess around here. We played through injuries. And today we got a good one, man. D Brown. Listen, you're a West Coast guy. You're a Lakers guy. I know you do not really like the Celtics. Mm -mm. I'm an East Coast guy. I'm a New York guy. I do not really like the Celtics. But I think all that being said, I think you 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 can't do anything but respect and appreciate the story that we're about to go through today with D. He gets there in 1990 when the Celtics are fresh off two first-round exits, which is uncharacteristic for them. They spent the previous decade pretty much in the Eastern Conference Finals or beyond. They won a handful of championships. So this is pretty much the last chance or the last years that the Bird and McHale teams can win a championship. You can't talk about this time period without talking about Reggie Lewis. He was D's guy. He was entering his prime, and he was a superstar. Most of us know the story. He passes away tragically in the summer of 1993 after going through cardiac arrest. So whereas the Celtics were set up for Lewis to carry them into the future, tragedy strikes and they go the opposite direction. D is there for the next four years where the Celtics kind of bottom out. He's there when Rick Pitino barges in and takes over the franchise and is kind of marketed as the savior. You'll hear some interesting stuff that D says about the Patino era. So all that to say, why is this a story that regardless of your fandom and how you feel about the Celtics, you should be interested in? Well, first of all, I'm not going to do the Celtics any favor. You already hit it on the head. I'm a, I'm a stone called California Holic and, you know, the Lakers being my team that I rooted for, that I grew up watching and eventually had a chance to play for. Um, D Brown was a guy who captivated the imaginations of a lot of young hoopers. We know him from the, you know, our generation knows him from the dunk contest, the Reebok pumps, the whole nine, but you hit it on the head. He's one of us fortunate enough to his name to be synonymous with a lot of NBA history. If you're into those things, like we are here on forgotten season. So D Brown, not only captivated the minds of young hoopers, but he also, after his career, he ascended into the front office. So he's also, left some nuggets, you know, in uh, in this interview about, you know, how the transition goes for former players and how hard and how you have to be introspective and learn how to communicate and disassociate yourselves from different things you were as a player in order to make some moves in the business world. His just happened to be in the front office, but there's some nuggets in this interview for any former player, uh, how to transition it on to you know, life after basketball. So hats off to D Brown. The interview was fantastic. Learned a lot about him. And uh, really just solidified uh, the guy who I thought he was from the outside looking in, having not really hung out with him like that. But, you know, for a Celtic, he was okay. I think this was a really good one. If any of you out there aren't fond of the Celtics, which I'm sure, you know, there's a few straw pool. There's a few. If you take a straw pool of NBA fans, I would say that there's a decent uh, proportion of them that don't really like the Celtics because 
we all have an annoying Celtics fan in our life, and we know how that goes. But anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. We're going to be back every single Wednesday. You can catch us here. You can catch us on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, on the DraftKings Network. So hope you guys enjoy. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Forgotten Seasons. Today, we've got D Brown reporting live from Jacksonville University. D, thank you for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me. Dylan Jelani, nice to see you, my brother. Always a pleasure, sir. Always a pleasure. Thanks for yes, coming sir. on. Yes, sir. So Thanks. we've got somebody here today that has 30 years of NBA experience under his belt. He played, was it 12 years in the league? And, and then another 18 years in coaching in front office. So my first mm-hmm. question for you, having sat in both chairs, right? You, you, were, you played, uh, you were in the front office, you were coach. So, so three chairs. When you make that transition from player to front office and then coach, does your outlook and how you view the game of basketball change? Is it kind of a mixture of all three now? Because I think a lot of players are, are maybe oblivious to the perspective of a coach or a front office. And you could probably say the same about those coaches and front office members uh, not being right. able to comprehend how a player looks at the game. Does that change? Is how you thought and looked at the game as a player just like so far gone now, or is it kind of a combination of all three? It's, it's definitely a mixture of all three. You know, I kind of felt that I was a coach on the floor when I was in the NBA anyway. You know, I got a chance to play with some of the best players in the world uh, that taught me the game, taught me how to respect the game, how to view the game, uh, how to approach it on a professional level on and off the court. So as I start transitioning out of the NBA, uh, I was preparing myself not really to be a coach, but more to just be an ambassador, a mentor for all the next generation guys. I think I always had to pay it forward. I always had a lot of guys that did that for me. I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss those guys like, you know, like Robert Parrish and Dennis Johnson, ML Carr, uh, you know, uh, Cedric Maxwell. Those guys kind of prepared me for preparation of how to be a mentor and a big brother to these guys. So when I retired, it wasn't easy. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard for me. Like I was, I was, I, was, I was ready at that time. The, the league didn't push me out. Uh, it was pretty much like, I, I know I've got something bigger to offer to these guys. Uh, that's not uh, the physical part of the sport, uh, more the mental part, more the, you know, the, the skill and life development part of being a, a veteran basketball player, which we don't have a lot of those nowadays, mm-hmm. which I think that, you know, the league kind of, you can see that with certain things that's happened in the league, those mentors, those OGs mm-hmm. that we call them now, uh, in a league that that can basically you know you know put you in line or you know give you fair warning what to expect Break in the around. NBA. So yeah, exactly. You know, always say success leaves footprints, mm-hmm. and we don't follow them enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I try to follow success, follow those footprints. You're going to have your own footprints in your own direction, but the the, the way to greatness is follow those footprints that's been there before you, um, and that's what I try to to do. So when I left the NBA. Uh, in a planned capacity, I went straight to the front office. I literally told John Gabriel, who's the general manager at the Orlando Magic at that time, I'm done playing. I'm retiring. I still had like a year left on my contract. Mm. Uh, I'm done playing. My body just can't do it anymore. But mentally, I'm still sharp, and I want to contribute to the franchise. He said, you sure you want to retire? I said, yes. He goes, okay, your office is down the hall. Mm. The same day. The same mm. day. So my preparation for that was an easy transition. I went right from playing on the court to go into the front office. And the funny story about that, and I'm sure somebody might have heard this before, is that I got a 10 day while I was in the front office. Like Doc Rivers was the head coach. And 
Guys were getting hurt. I was in the front office. I was doing my player development stuff. Yeah, but this is like 2022? No, 2002. I was going to say. When I retired. Yeah, 2002. And and guys were getting hurt. And my office my office right down, she, right down the hall from Doc Rivers' office. And he goes, hey, what you got left in the tank? I go, oh, I got 20 days. <laughs> so he goes, hey, right. come on down. I left my front office job, went downstairs, got back on the court for 20 days. I didn't play a lot. I don't think I played at all. Uh, guys got healthy and went back to the front office. So again, like <laughs> I think that was the last time you can do that. Like mm-hmm. go from the front office to the to, to the court and then rack up the front office. So that was a, another experience that the respect that I have from from the coaching staff, from the players, that they still felt I have value to them. So my transition is always about about the next generation, not about myself. The, uh, as a former player, let me ask you a question: When you make that transition from the the, the, mm-hmm. the bench to the front office. Was there mm-hmm. is there a transition with the perception of like now you're in the office now like you you you've lost a little bit of the locker room like <laughs> do you feel right. a certain energy are they rolling your eyes or you know at the time where you opened the, you did the players open you or welcome arms was it fifty yeah. fifty what's the energy behind because like you said you were just playing boom the next year you and yeah. you in the front <laughs> yeah. office you know what I mean what's the right. what's the energy uh, like behind that. Well, after you make a decision to make such a move, well, there's some adjusting across the board, even from even from the coaches, mm-hmm. like even from Doc uh, and the coaching staff. You know, it, that, that those time when I was there, Tracy McGrady was there, and Grant Hill was there. You know, Bo Outlaw, Daryl Armstrong. So those guys are still playing. So I was obviously the veteran guy on that basketball team. Uh, so when I left, they still looked at me as a veteran. Mm-hmm. But again, conversations a little different. Nice. You know, you don't get those privy information that's going on in the locker room because you really don't want it because now you know again I'm, I'm at that time you know going from a player you're, you're really answering to doc rivers and the staff right. when you're you know in the front office you're you're answering to you know uh you know john gabriel mm-hmm. uh and, and the ownership group mm-hmm. and you got it's a thin line it you don't want to cross that line mm-hmm. you don't want to be in the locker room guys are having those type of conversations even on road trips you go on a road trip and you see a, you know a player that you just went to dinner with last you know last year uh, you really can't do that anymore. You have you know, to. Like, hey, you have to give them their space. That, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, right. Give them space. Is that just a natural? Pro- is, some type of is that just like the natural progression to it? It's like it has to be that way. I was not. It's not even a blind eye. It's like you said. It's that delicate balance and that fine line was where it's like we can't do this anymore. Right. I'm not a player anymore. Right. I can't. I, you don't want to be in player spaces. Right. You know, when I was a player, I didn't want ownership and GMs in my space. Right. And we didn't want that. Because you felt like you know you 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 know, you're spying on me, you're looking on me, and even the, being one year away, you know, from playing, it's still that you're not a player now. You're a front office person, so I don't know who you're telling this information to, and not that they didn't trust me, but that's just a perception. Right. So you know, your people's perceptions are their reality. Right. So I had to understand that. So I'm out and about. Even in, in you know, town, you see guys out, you just say, oh, you know, that's your space. Mm-hmm. You know, let me go another direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just a respect factor that you wanted to build and a trust. Because, you know, you know, Jelani, if guys don't trust you, you can't talk to them unreal. Mm-hmm. You can't give them real information. Mm-hmm. You can't be hard on them. You as soon as you lose that trust, you know, coaches, executives, player to player, uh, you lose that ability uh to, to, to be real with them. Right. And that, to me, I didn't ever want to lose that ability to be real with guys uh, when I retired. So winding back the clock now, kind of setting the scene in your arrival in Boston, you go pick number 19 in the 1990 draft. 
I'm always kind of fascinated looking at the tail end of dynasties and how they unfold or sometimes rebound. Mm -hmm. I think we're maybe seeing it right now with the Warriors a little bit. So you arrive in 1990, the Celtics are fresh off two consecutive first round exits. And for them, that's Mm -hmm. kind of uncharted territory. The previous eight years, they'd made the Eastern Conference Finals every single year. They'd won a handful of championships in that span. What is the kind of vibe and the energy like when you arrive in Boston? Uh, obviously, we've got Larry Bird. We have Reggie Lewis, Kevin McHale, mm. Robert Parrish. Is it, if you remember kind of those first days of training camp or summer workouts, like, is it a restless energy? Is it de- a determined energy? Because I think those those guys in the team probably knew, like, time is yeah. running out. We don't have, we, we still yeah. have a window, but we are at the end of the window. Right. And then here you are kind of thrust into you know, 20, 25 minutes a game as a rookie. What what is the energy like when you arrive in Boston? Um, Kind of take us and paint that picture for us. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a student on the game. I knew the history of basketball. You know, I remember when I went on my visit uh, during the the draft process uh, to meet with the Celtics and I didn't didn't do an on-court workout with them. I I spent probably like five to six hours at Red Arbonne strictly mm-hmm. talking to him talking basketball sitting in his office that is literally a basketball hall of fame mm-hmm. you know um go drove around the city and we talked basketball um i didn't i didn't do a court workout for the celtics which was it was amazing um i did court, court workouts for other teams so when i got drafted you know it was still that transition of still trying to bounce back from lynn bias's passing away mm-hmm. um so we were still trying to they were still trying to get back that energy of losing a great player like Lynn, and then obviously, you know, uh, at the tail end of the big three that still were all-stars, still mm-hmm. were top players in the league. When I got there, it was almost a, a you know, a, you know, you say you, you say about the Warriors, it was like an a, a, a injection of youth. Mm. Myself, Brian Shaw, so Reggie weird. Lewis, Kevin Gamble, those were the young guys. They used to call us the Zip Boys. That was our nickname when we got there, the Zip Boys, because the Zip Boys are going to take over for her the big three mm-hmm. and so when we got there it was pretty much like we know we're the big guns we've been the big guns for a long time we've got history with the, the Celtics on championships but this is the transition this transition to Reggie Lewis to Brian Shaw to D Brown from the front court to the back court so the, that was exciting that people were talking about that loud about here's a transit here's a group you can see it mm-hmm. you can see what's happening with the transition with this basketball team they're going from the old back it down, Dennis Johnson, post-ups, you know, throwing the ball to Chief, everybody got away to like, we're spreading the court, we're running up and down the court. You get lob dunks and alley-oop dunks and, you know, you know, guys coming, you know, doing things that they didn't see uh, in the 80s. Uh, oh, so, so they were ca- ca- catching it, up with the league. The rest of the league was getting yes, their back post up and getting more up exactly. and down. Yeah. It is a great mixture because Larry, Kevin, and Chief didn't get in the way. Uh-huh. They, 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 they loved it because it made them – better players we sped the game up a little bit we didn't have to have so much of the the burden on them to have to do everything um but they still are, are focal points you know and then reggie emergence just came after that so i enjoyed that pressure you know like you know you hear it and i think somebody said a quote i know people talk about it now that you know you you, you hang championship banners in boston you know and that was it we don't hang division banners in-season banners that we're talking about now with the, with the Lakers. I could go there with the Lakers. But, you know, that was important. Like, you play, I was playing in the old garden with all these championships, all this history. You know, being a young player in that environment was like, you couldn't ask for a better environment to be in because you came in winning. 
do people say that the big three stayed a little longer than they're supposed to? You start changing, you know, you know, you got to make trades or, you know, get rid of them before, uh, you know, they have past no their value prime. before they have no value. Yeah. That's hard to do. Yeah. That's hard to do. They did so much for the franchise and for the organization. You don't, you don't just say, you know what? We're trying to, and you didn't do that in the eighties and nineties. You just didn't get rid of your superstar players. You kind of let them, you know, fade and leave on their own right terms, off into the did. sunset and you res- mm-hmm. yeah and you and you, res- and you respect that um you know a lot of dynamics happen between Lynn Bias, obviously and reggie um that kind of changed the, the tide uh for the organization for a lot for a lot of years until they caught back up in the late 90s uh, but that pressure you loved it. you loved it you know we had an opportunity we got to the, you know got past the first round you know lost to the pistons yep. my rookie year mm-hmm. That then that was the walk off year where you know the Pistons walk off the court, Jordan's first championship. Mm-hmm. But we we're right there. Like we we had the best record in the league at All Star break. Our coaches were the All Star coaches mm-hmm. my rookie year. So we were that team that had a chance to win the championship. Things happen. Larry gets hurt. You know, uh, you know his bag goes out. You know, you know we we're trying to you know scramble to to get to 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 do better uh, late in the, in 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 the season. The Bulls pass us for the best record. Um, uh, at the end of the season, the Pistons beat us in the conference semifinal. So, you know, a lot of things happened mm-hmm. in, that, in that little short period of time. Those guys were there, uh, where we didn't just get over that hump uh, to to make that run while they were still uh, the the big three was still there. I don't want to skip. I don't want to skip too much, but bring up Reggie Lewis and obviously his tragic passing in 1993. I think mm-hmm. what what yeah. made. I mean, it's tragic as it is, but like you mentioned, there was kind of that perfect bridge where Bird and Mikhail and Parrish are, are fading out, riding out to the sunset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here you have this yeah. young superstar and, and then by his yeah. side are, are you and guys like Brian Shaw and they were set yeah. up. How good was Reggie Lewis? Was he, would he have been the one a on a championship team? Oh, no question. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a second best. He was a second best two guard in the league mm-hmm. behind Jordan. I say that I'll say that to anybody, you know, Reggie Miller was great. Mitch, Mitch Richard was great. Joe Dumars was kind of getting, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a little older. Mm-hmm. Reggie Lewis, that guy, you, nobody had the term two-way players back then. Right. He was a two-way player. Right. He was a, one of the first guys I've seen block Jordan's fadeaway. Not once, not twice, but three times. As a Laker like, fan, I love, I, I love Reggie Lewis. Yeah. And I hated it. And I hated quiet. the Celtics. Yep. Oh, gosh. Yep. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> quiet. You know, like, he'll have 40 points you never knew. Uh, you know, wasn't demonstrably athletic, could play both ends of the floor. And, you know, I understand with the Celtics' legacy and history, there was always that guy in line. There was always that guy in line. They went from, have, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, Kuzi to Russell, Russell to Havlicek, Havlicek to Cowens, Cowens to Bird, mm-hmm. Bird to, it was supposed to be Lenny, Bias, mm-hmm. and, and then Reggie was the next guy in line. So when he passed away, the, the, the legacy chain got broken because I'd be, I was always honest. I wasn't that guy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a one A. Mm-hmm. I might've been a good two, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a three. Mm-hmm. I knew I was in a one A, but I got thrusted in a situation to be a one A mm-hmm. quick on, on, on top because you don't prepare for that. You don't, you can see the big three retiring, but you don't prepare for your, one of your good friends and teammates and, and big brother passing away and all of a sudden you're thrust in a, in a situation where now you're 1A mm-hmm. and it was tough. I, I'm not going to lie, being 1A 
There's yeah. nothing, <laughs> nothing, especially in Boston, uh, especially with the history of one A's. Mm-hmm. The one A's in the history of the Celtics is a little different than a lot of teams. Right. So it, 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 was, it was tough. It was real tough. Um, but, yes, he was, he was the guy. He could have been a 1A. He could have propelled the franchise further. We wouldn't have this big struggle in the 90s until, obviously, late in the 90s with we drafted Antoine and Paul mm-hmm. and those guys down the road. Uh, but yeah, it's, he would have been that guy. And I, I say it to this day, you know, he was, he was as, as good as a two-way player you could see. I look at his scoring prowess, you know, obviously we didn't shoot a lot of threes back then, but you know, the same body, you know, composition as, as, as a Kevin Durant, mm-hmm. he wears 35, mm-hmm. you know, he wore 35, um, could score in bunches. Smooth, um, smooth, smooth, smooth. Yep. Yep. sweet shooter. We used to call him sweet shooter, mm-hmm. you know, and he did it on both ends of the court. So, you just hate to see that happen to somebody that has such a promising future, not just just the basketball part, but his legacy in Boston. He went to Northeastern, exactly. he did a turkey giveaway. People loved him in Boston. Mm-hmm. I mean, people loved him in Boston because he was just an essence of just the next guy in line to carry the franchise through that '90s decade, and he didn't get an opportunity to do it. Another thing that I think is very interesting with your arrival in Boston, and, and you've spoken about this, I'm going to steal this topic from Michael Cooper's podcast and ask you to go more, <laughs> more, more in depth. You, you spoke on Dennis Johnson and his impact on you, specifically on the defensive end. Obviously, DJ is mm-hmm. one of the most beloved Celtics of all time, and he goes to the assistant yeah. coaching bench uh, when you get there. Mm-hmm. You talked about how he kind of taught you how to count dribbles on the defensive yeah. <laughs> end and anticipate. Can you walk you us, can you remember that yeah. conversation? And like, what, what, what exactly yeah. was he trying to teach you? Well, it's funny that, that a, a great player like Michael Cooper, when I spoke with him, had no clue I was talking about. And you would, you would think that that was a norm, but it really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis Johnson was such a great on the ball defender. I mean, he would, you know, you watch the old film of him. He would pick the ball off people so easily. And I always wonder why I would ask him like, if that, Again, back then, it was a little bit of hand checking. Mm-hmm. You could kind of guide the guy we wanted to if you were strong enough. He was strong. I remember him, you know, because, again, when I got there, it was a year he retired. So I got number one. I got some I got some heat early. You can't replace Dennis Johnson. You know, like, who's this young guy from Jacksonville we don't know about trying to take Dennis Johnson's spot? And DJ deflected a lot of that attention to himself. Like, hey, I'm here to mentor him. He's not taking my spot. I retired. I'm, in the, I'm, I'm on the bench. Um so I will always pick his brain between him and Robert Parrish. Those two guys were just uh, such a wealth of information um, on the court, off the court, how to be professional, how to dress for the games. But with Dennis, so I will watch a lot of film. Like I said, I was a, a historian of basketball, and I was always watching Celtic Lakers games all the time. You know, we all did. You know, Jelani you know, on CBS, Tommy Heinsohn. Um, so I said, I said, DJ, like, you know, like, how do you, how do you, pick guys' pockets all the time. Like, you're not the quickest. You got long arms. Um, you know, you, you know you're, you're, you're a physical guard, 6'4", big guard. He goes, well, I, I count dribbles. I go, what do you mean count dribbles? He goes, yeah, like, there's, there's a method of, of taking the ball off somebody's body if you know how to count dribbles. And I, he went into this whole explanation, and he went on the court and showed me. He goes, listen, guys get into a rhythm, rhythmic pattern when they're dribbling. They're either they're yeah they're either they're comfortable or they're at 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 at, 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 at duress like but when they're in duress they always go back to their comfort zone pattern so you watch them when they're not under duress if they do one two dribble change one two dribble change whatever it is is what they did it might be one one check yeah, skip whatever it is so you say watch them in the first 
five to seven minutes of the game. Mm. And put a little token pressure on them, but not too much, where they feel they're comfortable dribbling. AL, what they feel like comfortable dribbling. Once you figure out their pattern, start counting their dribbles or when they do it. So if they do one, two, between the legs, one, two, behind the back, now you know when to attack the ball. Because once the ball leaves their hand, it's a free ball. They can't make the ball come up. You, you steal the ball when it hits the, when it leaves their hand, hits the floor, not when it's in their hand. So he goes, that's how you count dribbles. You'll know their pattern based on when the ball leaves their hand and hit the floor. So I started doing that a couple of times. Hey, one, two, boom, one, two, three, boom. And it worked. Like I would get steals on the ball all, from guys I never thought I could take the ball from because they're so outstanding handlers. But what you do is you let them get into their comfort zone and then you put the heat on them. And once you put the heat on them, they go right to it. That's their comfort because they're used to doing that. And all of a sudden, you know exactly what they're going to do. So it sounds more difficult or simplistic than I'm saying, no, but it really happens. Sounds now, perfect. To not me. every now, 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 not everybody you could get. Yeah, Isaiah Thomas's, you know, the John Bagley's. I was going to ask you about him. Hurt. I was going to ask you about him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's certain guys that they switch up on you real quick and have you looking real crazy <laughs> out there. Um, but the, most of the guys that you can get after a little bit as a point guard, um, they did have those rhythm rhythm dribbles where you can count and get a pattern uh, to know when you can attack the ball with the leaves of hand because they were so used to doing it uh, during the course of the game. Was John Stockton a rhythm dribbler? John Stockton was a rhythm dribbler, um, but he was really good because he was very – he was a physical guard to be so small. Mm-hmm. Like he was strong, he had big hands. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, he did it all. Um, you know, like guys like, uh, you know, Derek Harper was strong. It was hard to get him. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the guys that were like, um, that were like trying to be real quick, that's the guys who get rid of dribbles. The, the power guards, and I'm not calling John Stockton a power guard, mm-hmm. but he was. But he played big. Like you, yeah, he played big. You couldn't get, you couldn't get closer than enough to him because he had enough hands. We call it hand to hand warfare. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the 90s, you had to win the hand-to-hand warfare. Whoever got the hands on you first won. Mm. And John Stark would get his hands on you first. Mm-hmm. So you could never get to the ball. You know, veteran guys, Derek Harper, uh, Tim Hardaway, you know, guys like that, you know, uh, Kevin Johnson. Mm-hmm. Those guys yeah. knew how to play the hand. Yeah, they knew how to do the hand-to-hand combat quicker. Mm. Some of the guys who just thought they could just beat you because they were more talented or had handles, you could maybe get into a little bit. So it was uh, – yeah, be very selective in doing that <laughs> because you don't want to be left and crossover at half court, and all of a sudden, you know, you got the guys looking at you like, "Dude, just stay in front. I feel, just stay in front." I so, feel like back then too, there was only like a certain amount of patterns. The patterns changed as the game evolved. Oh, yeah, because now they got hesitation, cross, right? Yeah. But the, back then, yeah. it's like with the hand check, it's like one, two, turn. <laughs> yeah, two. You know exactly. what I mean? Step oh, back, yeah. invite yeah, the pressure, yeah. cross, go this way. Yeah. Now they like the head. One two in and out yeah. hesitation yeah. behind the go, back. Go, you know, go, go. yeah. Well, you can also you can also you can also carry. You can take five steps now. Facts. Facts. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because, like you said, you know, Jelani, that the hand checking helped mm-hmm. because you can guide the person a little bit. If it makes guys turn turn their back, like the two guys who hated to be pressured all the time was Magic and Isaiah mm-hmm. because they were just like they wanted free reign, and you know, they're high turnover guys because they had the ball in their hands all the time. Uh, but it's hard to pressure those guys because Magic was 6'9". He would just back me down the whole time and turn mm-hmm. his back. Yes, and back me down. Isaiah would just, 
I mean, we talk about Kyrie and Steph Curry and, you know, uh, you know, Jamal Crawford. Isaiah Thomas handles was unreal. I was going to ask that. Unreal. Probably, so you say under, most underrated handles and oh, it's disrespectful for him oh. not to be mentioned with those guys that you it just did. I agree. Yeah, it, it, it should be mentioned because, again, the freedom of play now is a lot different mm-hmm. than it is was in the 90s. But the comparison I do the most comparison is is football with wide receivers. The freedom of being able to run your route and to be able to get a thousand yards in the eighties and nineties is a lot different than getting a thousand yards good now. Good and now that yeah, Jerry Rice and 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 you know Tyreek and, and Tyreek Tyree Rice, you know, like like Tyreek Hill, like those guys are talented. But I mean, the freedom I mean freedom of movement. Who do you want to hit you? Who do you want to hit you? Ronnie Lott? Or this other guy, like those guys were, were running through you, the physicality of the play. And again, I'm not that guy like, oh, you know, these guys can play in our era. Sure they could. Great players can play in any era. I'm not that guy that say these guys now can't play in our era. People, great players adjust. Great players now to, to adjust their game to be great, no matter 80s, 90s, 2000s. So, uh, but again, with the, with the freedom of, of, of movement now, there's more things you can do with the ball mm-hmm. that you couldn't do in the 90s because you could put your hands on somebody. Right. Give us, right. A, g- give us a look inside the off-the-court camaraderie with those Larry Bird, McHale Celtics. We know what they were like on the court, but right. who was the dude that was like <laughs> organizing the team functions? Was it Larry Bird? Were there any memorable off-court yeah. uh, experiences in your first few years with the Celtics? What was that like? No, I think all three had different personalities. That's why they got along so well on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all different, but they're all, I mean, literally significantly different type of individuals. Larry Bird was two hours before practice, two hours after practice. You know, that was his workout. Kevin, two minutes before, two minutes after. Like, I'm going to give it to you now in practice, and then I'm going to go home and go play golf. And I'm going to hang with my family. Uh, Robert was the professional. Like, he got there, did his treatment, you know, got to practice, did his treatment afterwards. You know, hey, young fella, let's go to dinner. I want to talk to you about some professional things, how to dress. You know, the one thing that Robert did for me when I got in the league was he always told me from day one that you are a professional. You you can wear your sweats during the game. You don't wear them to the game. Mm. So he, his thing with me was like, if you buy five suits, I will buy you five suits to match your suits. That's so true. how that's many okay. suits you buy as a rookie, that's a vet. How many suits you buy, I would match. So I went about 10 suits. He bought me 10 suits. So off the rip, from day one as a rookie, I had 20 suits. And he said, you wear a suit to game every game. You watch Robert Parrish. You never seen Robert Parrish in a sweatsuit. Never. During, <laughs> never. 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 And that was that, that was serious to him. He goes, "You gotta present yourself like a pro, dude." And from day one, that was the thing he brought to me. Kevin, he 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 brought the 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 fun. Like everything's not serious, mm. you know. Like shoot arounds, he was fun. He would sit on the sideline, you know, and 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 make jokes about everybody. Um, you wouldn't think um, Chief was like that. Coaches. When you see his face, it, you know, in some oh, of the highlights in the picture, when you see his face, you yeah. know what I mean? He's always like frowned up yeah. or serious. Chief was funny. Yeah, oh, of Chief course. Oh, yeah. I, oh, oh yeah. he was hilarious yeah. because he would he would be like the the, 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 the the moderator between Larry and Kevin, you know, yeah. because their approach is too different. He was like, he was like Egg McMahon. He would just laugh and, 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 and egg those who on because he knew they would get into it just because they were so competitive and they just, their approach were different, but they were great together on the court. Um, Larry, he was just, you know, you know, when you play one of the best players ever to play, you just, you just watch. 
right. and say, you know, why, why is he great? Right. Is it his work ethic? Is it his, his preparation? Is it, what is he looking at? Like, why can I see the things he see? Right. You know, he was like a chess player, like a master chess player. Um, so I would, I would mimic his, like his viewpoints and, 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 and talk to him after practice. And, you know, my rookie year, I probably shot, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand shots after practice just with him, just to see what it looks like to see that ball go in and his 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 attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So he showed me what I thought was working hard looked like until I got to see him really what hard work looks like. It, it takes time. It takes sacrifice. Um, you know, you know, you have to do the hard things. You have to uh, you know prepare your body because uh, he went through a lot of stuff to to play, like with his back and his right. ankles and all that stuff like that. Uh, but they're all great people. You know, I had rookie duties like everybody else, you know, you know, Larry wanted certain things and Kevin wanted certain things and Chief wanted certain things. Um, uh, and you do that just because, you know, you got to pay your dues. So, but they treated me great. They treated me like a, 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 a little brother who was just dying just to be around them. You know, the little brother that, that, that follows the, the, the big brother. brother around the parks. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. And they, they never shunned me, go away, you're young go away, you know, you're not ready for this. They they embraced me. And that made me realize when I got as a veteran, I was going to do the exact same thing to the guys that came, you know, after me, like the Vince Carters, the Tracy McGrady's, uh, you know, the Chauncey Billups, those guys that had a chance to be around um, and mentor. Uh, so those three guys just brought a different perspective of everything about how to be a veteran in the NBA. Dude, let me ask you a question before you before you get to this next one, Jalen, because I always like to ask this of veterans and, and, and people, you know, played in the association. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have that type of veteran leadership in the league when you come into the league your first one to three years? How could your how does a young player's career like turn if they don't have mm-hmm. a, a Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, assuming yeah, right. the ins and outs of the league? on and off the court. Right. We, 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 we love to talk about this on the show. I love to ask people like, you know, yeah. you've been in the front office. Right. Uh, how mm-hmm. important is it to have a, a veteran leadership to show you the ropes in the NBA? If you got, dra- well, if, like, if you got drafted by Washington instead of Boston. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, there is a lot of pitfalls as a young player coming to league. Mm-hmm. You know, the obvious things is you can say it, money and women. Right, those are two that, that's top. there that you everybody everybody knows off the rip. Mm-hmm. Okay, money you've got to get a lot of money. All of a sudden, you're gonna have a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's your circle, uh, the yes men, the people gonna tell you what you tell you what you want to hear, what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. In the NBA, in the locker room, you need you need truth tellers. You need you need you need truth tellers. People gonna tell you the truth when it hurts your feelings. People gonna tell you when you effing up and not working hard and in the street too much and, you know, don't do this, don't go here, be careful you hang around. Because, they listen, they, they've been there. They've done that. They've been around these people. They've seen different people. They've seen different situations. Uh, if it's – and a lot of it, to me, veterans, it's not so much uh, the education of how to play basketball. It's how to respect the game, how to respect yourself, how to respect your teammates, how to respect your coaches, how to respect the janitor, how to respect the – uh, the, the chaplain, the, the pilot on the plane, uh, the, the ticket, people in the, the hotel. Ticket, the ticket, the ticket person, the yes. people on the plane. Oh, yeah, to yeah. Me, yes. To me, that's what veterans do because mm-hmm. that's all important. Um, listen, 
can I tell Vince Carter how to dunk better? Man, no, probably not. He jumps higher than me. He's a probably, he's a better dunker than me. But what I can tell him is how to uh, conduct yourself in public. You know, when you're out in a restaurant, you know, how to say yes, ma'am, and sit up straight and look people in the eye. Like say those type of things veterans do. Mm-hmm. Yes, veterans do for, 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 for young guys. It's the life stuff. You know, they got enough people to tell you how good you are. You should be getting more shots. Why coach ain't playing you? Uh, you know, if I was you, I would say, no, 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 no. How about the stuff that's going to have a lasting effect on your life mm-hmm. and your livelihood and your family? Those type of things I, I deem that veterans are needed for in the NBA because mm-hmm. the league's so young. Mm-hmm. Like, when I came to the league, the league was an old league. And oh, what I mean no. by that, your superstars are 28, 29, 30, wife and kids, mm-hmm. you know, not hanging out as much as maybe the young guys. Now the league is 17, 18, 19. Your superstars are 21, 22. You know, they barely can go out and get a drink. They're not even legal enough to get a drink. And you're telling me, you're going to tell me that you know about life? I mean, your 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 mind isn't, isn't fully developed until 25 years old. Mm-hmm. So you're going to tell me you're a 23, 24, 25-year-old person is a veteran, is going to tell me uh, – the, 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 how to how to live life and make rational and and uh, and, and sane decisions, mm-hmm. you know that's that's tough. So having these old heads on the bench in the front office, to me, it's not so much a basketball talent, physicality, growth part. It's a life skills. I will keep you focused, give you some of these pitfalls you might see. I'm just putting it out there for you. If it's finances, if it's relationships. If it's with your family, if it's your friends, just just giving you some insight on what's going to come now that you're in the NBA and a professional a professional basketball player. Mm. Before we get to the '91 playoffs, our, our producer Eric was mentioning. I mean, what was going from Jacksonville to Boston like? Did you? We obviously we, <laughs> yeah, we obviously yeah, yeah. we obviously hear a lot from you know different stories, different visiting teams of what Boston was like in the late '80s, early yeah. '90s. Is it true that you yeah. had some sort of like run-in with 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 the law? Like, was there a did you get stopped in your car in the outskirts of Boston? Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, when I left Boston, it was the first time I when I got to Boston, it was the first time I ever left Jacksonville. I went to high school in Jacksonville, went to college in Jacksonville. I think I seen snow maybe once, um, and in my life before I got to Boston, so it was a, a lot different. Um, and I remember my grandfather, you know, uh, my my my, my uh, mom's dad. You know, great, great guy, but he's very Southern, very Southern guy. You know, I don't think he ever left Jacksonville ever in his life. He never left the South. And I remember I got drafted by the Celtics. And he loved, loved the Lakers, loved the Lakers. Uh, but he loved basketball. And I remember he said, the first thing he said, hey, you know, you know, be careful. You're going up South. And I understand that term. I'm going up South. What does that mean? He goes, just be careful, son. So, you know. Me, you know, bright-eyed, bushy tail, going to Boston. I'm playing with Larry Burke, Kevin McHale, Robert Paris. I'm loving it. You hear the stories, you know, you, you know, hear the stories, you know, what happened to Bill Russell mm-hmm. and all the, you know, all the you know, Casey Jones, all the players, you know, Seth Sanders, that when they were there in Boston. And you go, listen, those are authentic, real stories. Like, you don't dismiss those. Those are, those are, those are their experiences. And like you mentioned earlier, I had my experience as soon as I got there. So I got drafted. Um obviously in June and then uh, in and later that year I was looking for a house you know trying to find somewhere where to live uh, to get ready for the season um, and it had to be maybe a couple months after that I don't remember the day I think it was sometime in August um, before the season started and I was in 
in Wellesley, which is the outskirts of Boston. And I was at the post office uh, getting my mail because I didn't have a place. I was getting my mail forwarded to the post office back then in the P.O. box. Mm-hmm. So I was checking my mail. Um, and uh, basically, you know, cop cars came to my car. thought I was a bank robber that robbed a bank a week earlier. Had guns to my head. Um, and, you know, I really thought I was going to die. I honestly did. It was, it was a very, very traumatic situation in the sense that the first thing I thought about was my granddad. You know, the first thing I thought about, um, uh, and this had nothing to do, again, um, with uh, something I did. I, I was in my car. I wasn't speeding, doing anything illegal. I was just sitting in my car. Uh, I got mistaken as a bank robber. Uh, uh, and again, yeah, it's a, it's a black guy that robbed the bank. It was a black guy across the street. So you start thinking about that stuff, and you go, wow, you know, is this really how it is in Boston? Mm-hmm. And I made a conscious decision to still live in that town. Um, you know, I didn't sue the town. You know, I, I wanted to be in Boston. I wanted to make change. I wanted to make awareness. You know, a lot of things happened in that town. I think the, the, the mayor resigned and the chief of police resigned, yeah. you know, because there's a lot of change, a lot mm-hmm. of conversation on why is this happening mm-hmm. in 1990. Um, um, and uh, that was important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love Boston. My wife's from Boston. She went to Cambridge. She, she's from Cambridge. She went to the same high school as Romeo Robinson, Patrick Ewan. Okay. Uh, I've been married 30 years. I still got family in Boston. Mm-hmm. She played basketball in college out in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I love Boston. Like I have nothing but love for Boston and people. Um, I, Cause I don't, I don't base that one incident on the people of Boston. Mm-hmm. You hear the stories and there's places like any city that you got to be careful where you go. It doesn't, right. it doesn't matter. <clears throat> there's there's places that are dangerous for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, uh, race, you know, you know, ethnicity, you know, uh, gender. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't matter. Um, that's just awareness. That's just knowing your where you are. The um, surroundings and, but I was just in Boston during the holiday season and it was great. Loved it. People saw me. D, welcome back. Glad you're in town. See your family. You know, people know I saw family up there, and I still love the Celtics. That's always going to be number one, as you see behind me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, the, the team that I love. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, – that that experience was different because it just, uh, you know, it brings awareness to these things happen. Now, what if, what if I wasn't a Celtic? Well, yeah. You know, with something worse – you know, you start to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, how much does this, does this happen that nobody knows about? Mm-hmm. You know, those are the conversations you start having in your mind that this could be anybody. This could be any somebody's child or, you know, somebody's brother or uh, husband, you know. So those things played on my, 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 my soul a little bit because if I wasn't a Celtic, somebody recognized me saying, hey, that's the guy that just got drafted by the that's how they that's how they knew it wasn't I wasn't a bank robber. Yeah. Somebody walked by and say, no, that's the guy that just got drafted by the Celtic. I see him in the newspaper. That's the worst. Now, nobody said that. I've been, I've been yeah. in a situation like that, believe it or not, four years later yeah. in Westwood in California, and that happened to me, a case of mistaken yeah. identity. And uh, yeah. they put me down to the grounds, and that leaves a stain on your brain. Guns drawn on the yeah. curb like a regular criminal. Yeah. And I literally have yeah. what UCLA team sweats. <laughs> and they flashed the light on me, and they were like, turn over. And then I got lucky, and one of the uh, uh, officers was like, Jelani? 
And then, <laughs> and, and then yeah. I was like, oh man, this is lame. You know what I mean? And then you go yeah, through that yeah, whole, yeah. like, what if I wasn't Jelani? It could have right. been over for me exactly. in 30 seconds. If right. I could something smart, you know what I mean? Whatever smart, it yeah. is. So it, but it always yeah. leaves a stain on you. Like, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing yeah. well. Um, you know, I'm at right. UCLA. In your case, I'm D Brown. I'm doing well. I'm yeah. gonna be, you know, mm-hmm. a guard for the Celtics. But however, Celtics, yeah. I need to keep my antennas yeah. up. Yeah, antennas up all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's and, you know, that's just just knowing that. But again, that 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 was my, I guess, my first ex- experience when I got to Boston after the the fanfare of being drafted and you know you know going to the city and you know riding around and meeting everybody and all of a sudden you come back as a as a new rookie, the fanfare is over. You're not, you don't have the, the cameras around, you know, pointing you around, copy square and back bay. You're just kind of trying to find your way, and that happens. Right. So, yeah, it does. It, 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 it puts, a, like you said, Jelani, a little stain mm-hmm. in your mind, but I never use that as something that, that all, all people in Boston. And the same thing people say about the Celtics fans. Yeah. Like, you know, I've heard former players, or players who played at Boston, like I hate this. I hate Boston because their fans are terrible. Well, I've had people yell at me in Chicago, Detroit, San Antonio, LA, Utah, Philly, Seattle, (laughs) Utah. Trust me. Mm -hmm. So I don't say I hate Salt Lake City. Yeah, the fans, the 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 Utah Jazz fans hate Celtics players. You know because they love their team. Uh, So yeah, there's. I'm, I'm not. I'm not dismissive of bad people and bad behavior. Um, but I know it's, it's, as, as a athlete, and, and John, you can speak for this as well, you know, when you play for a certain team, the other team's going to not like you. I'm, that's that's your job. Going, you're, going, you're going to hear bad things. You're going to hear things. Now, we've gotten to the point where I think this happened with Luca. People cross the line a little bit, mm-hmm. but they say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or the things they say. You, know, you talk about somebody's family and their mom or their kids. Okay, like that's that's you know there's a unwritten rule that things out of bounds, but you know fans are fans, but you hate you hate for people to cross the line. But my experience in Boston, I loved it every minute of it. I still go up there and visit my family, uh, and I just love the area. So back to the season, the the ninety one playoffs, your first taste of the playoffs. You have two really tight series. You win against Indiana in five games in the first round, and then you play the bad boys which is fresh off their, you know, they're coming off two straight championships. Starting in Indiana, that's the series that you mentioned Bird had his back issues. He smashes his face on the ground, goes back to the locker room, comes back to a standing ovation. What what memories do you have of your first taste of the postseason? And for you as a rookie, you're playing huge minutes. You know, we talk about the 90s and 80s being so physical. I mean, you're what, like yeah. 155 pounds at that point? Like, what is... <laughs> I was 165. 165. <laughs> what are your first memories of that Indiana series and then maybe specifically that Bird battling injuries, him versus Chuck Person? What do you remember from that series? I'm going to say this. I'm not going to... I'm going to say this in this way and I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll circle back to it. Okay. Uh, it was easy. Mm. You know why? Because I was open half the, half the playoffs because... They were doubling Larry. They were doubling Kevin. They were doubling Chief. They were doubling Larry. I mean, uh, Reggie. I was open the whole Indiana and, and Detroit series. So I was like, so the the the, the first experience of, of Larry Bird and Chuck Person, like that was like that was made for TV. That was a thing. That was made for TV. 
oh man, the rifleman, because he was in Indiana, mm-hmm. and Larry talking mess to him. Mm-hmm. Like that was made for TV. Like um, them going back and forth. Them like you know, if I win a series, yeah, I come on my grass during off season. Like those are real things mm-hmm. that happen. You know, Larry. You know, Chuck. You know, with the the the, the rifleman thing. It's just to be a part of it. Reggie Miller, obviously now he was coming to his own a little bit. Um, just to be in that series to see that and being in the garden, your first year is like, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. Like you the organ playing, you know, no scoreboard, no dancers, no nothing. Just marketplace, hooping. marketplace just arena. Straight, you strictly hooping. Yeah, mm-hmm. marketplace, that place is so loud, straight hooping. So we got past that and then I was playing obviously the world champions. You know, the, the, the back-to-back world champions, you know, Isaiah, who's, you know, my idol growing up. And then the bad boys with Matt Horn and Lambeer and Rodman and Sally and Buddha. Like, it was – that was my coming out party, you know, um, because, you know, to, to go back to what I said at the beginning, they didn't respect me because I was a rookie. Right. And they knew who could beat them. They knew Larry Bird and Mikhail and Paris and Reggie Lewis could beat them. They didn't know where I could – they didn't know – that I had a chance to make the series a series. Um, and I remember that Larry used to, Larry would tell me like, dude, like, like tell them to stop doubling me. I want to play too. I want to get some shots up too. Tell your guy to stay on you. I want to get some shots up. And those guys always thought they were open. They always thought they had a mismatch. Mm-hmm. Nobody who was guarding those four guys, they had a mismatch. So it was me and literally four Hall of Famers on the court. So, the experience was great because I got a chance to grow. I got a chance to play against arguably the the, the, the top guard under six feet, six feet ever to play in basketball than Isaiah Thomas. The reason why I wore number four in college was because of Joe Dumars. Mm. So I'm playing against another one of my idols. Mm. Uh, him and Ron Harper were my two favorite players growing up. That's why I wore four in college. Um, so, so to be in that environment and be playing against the world champions, like that's why that's when you make your mark. Like, I said, like, the biggest thing in Boston is the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like, you can have a great regular season and fall to the playoffs, and it's a bad year. It doesn't matter. You get to the final. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So this is when you make your, your Celtics legacy. You know, all the numbers that are retired, all the great players in the Hall of Fame, you know, top 50 all-time, top 75 all-time, 18 to 20 of them are Celtics, you know, over the course of, of you know, since, you know, 1930s, you know, 1940s, uh, when, when, when uh, Celtics started winning championship and obviously in the in the fifties and sixties. So um, that's when you know you, you, you build your legs and your name as a Celtic in the playoffs. So I took that as a challenge because nobody knew who I was, you know, I had won a dunk contest. So people were like, okay, you know, he won a dunk contest. And he's, you know, he can dunk, but can he play? Right. Can he help the team win? And I was having a great rookie year. You know, I was third in voting a rookie of the year that year. I made all rookie teams. So I, I felt that the playoffs just kind of gave me a boost of confidence. Uh, moving into the next year, you know, with Larry in the trans, we talked about early the transition between the big three and now myself and Reggie. That was a that was a backcourt of the future, you know, me and Reggie. So I was looking forward to that 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 growth of yeah. being a part of the next next group of guys coming through to 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 build the Celtics. So, but it was a great it was a great series. I you know like they beat us in in I think six games. Uh, you know, Isaiah hit some crazy bank shot off the glass mm-hmm. and you know, playing the, the bull. So I always, I always told my kids, it's funny. I go, you know, that last dance, that should have been us. Mm-hmm. That should have been us playing mm-hmm. the, the George Championship, you know. Mm-hmm. And they laugh and go, well, it wasn't you. <laughs> it was, the, it was right. the Pistons. 
I said, yeah, okay, you're right, you're right. But that we we had a team built to beat the hope to compete against the Bulls that year to win a championship. But you know, we didn't get past the pistons in my rookie year. Dude, I want to go back to the slam <clears throat> to the slam dunk contest. Um, two things I want to talk about. You know, obviously uh, uh, the thing that everybody wants to know. We, we don't have to spend a bunch of time on it. And uh, how, uh, the, mm -hmm. the legendary pumping of the Reeboks and you know, uh, right. sending Reebok into the stratosphere with you know the, the, pump, <laughs> right. the pump model. But before we talk about Reebok, yeah. you spoke to it a little bit after winning the dunk contest. Is there like a I don't know if stigma is the right word, but after winning the contest, is there another like almost proving of yourself you have to go through? Because like, okay, like you said, is he just a dunker? Like, right. you, you know what I mean? Like, is he just here to, you know, be in the layup line yeah. and dunk? Yeah. Is there another right, right. click or a level you have to go to to almost prove yourself as a real basketball player, not just yeah. a slam dunk champion? Yeah, I was, I was lucky because number one, Celtics not supposed to be in a dunk contest. Boom. I was like, like, like a Celtic in a dunk contest. Like, right. what is going on? Right. So that helped me a little bit. That after I won the dunk contest, I still had to go back to a team like that was a a, a championship right. prepared team. Right. So I had to go back and play. I had to go back and and fill, fulfill my role as a rookie. Uh, be a you know obviously a sponge. These young guys helped them. You know get a chance to win another championship. So it, it got to a point, it was funny that, you know, you know, 82 games is a long year. And I played 82 games my rookie year. Like I played every game. That's tough. Um, right. uh, and, and, you know, you know, that's not a thing now playing 82 games, but I played 82 games. And I remember late in the season, you know, you get a little tired, rookie, you know, you say 165 pounds, banging against, you know, big, huge guards. Mm -hmm. I got a fast break line, lay up one time and I laid it up. They I know exactly booed what you're talking so about. Yeah. They booed me so bad. I'm not talking about the Boston fans. I'm talking on the road because they want to see the dunk contest. Yeah, yeah. And they booed me so bad. I was like, yo, what is going on? It's two points. But I, then I hit me like, oh, I'm the dunk champion. Yeah. Every time I get a chance to be at the rim, you're supposed to show I something. Be, I got to be, I got to show something. I got to mm. be hanging on the rim. And that was the funny part. So it, it, it hit me. But the, 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 the older veteran guys, they brought me back to, to reality. Like, dude, like that's part of your game. That's not who you are. Yeah. You know, you're you know, a young guy that's established yourself. Mm -hmm. Show everybody what you can do. Mm -hmm. And I did that from, from day one anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't really, you know, something I had to prove because mm -hmm. I had guys with me that made sure uh, that my game was more than just being a dunker. Well, Re Reebok, I saw, uh, I saw on your uh, Instagram, <laughs> uh, the mischief. The mischief shoes, the yes. the, the, the new yeah. remake of the uh, the pump model. To give us talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about your Reebok situation. Did you know what you were doing, Mister D Brown? Were you a marketing genius <laughs> at this point in time in your career, or was this or was yeah. this just something you did in the moment that led to you know a legendary uh, iconic moment? It's funny. I I I already had a Reebok contract already because that was really the only the only company that really wanted to give me a shoe. Mm -hmm. Like like hey. We're gonna give you shoes for free and give you some money. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, you know, you kind of. I was like, really? And they're based in Boston. They're based in Stoughton, Massachusetts. So it was, right. it was a no-brainer. My my whole mindset, it wasn't the money. It was like I could go to the warehouse and go get as much it's stuff as I want for me and my family anytime Hold I want. Up. Yeah, I was like, I was like, sign me up. So I always already had a Reebok contract already before the contest. 
Uh, and they didn't know I was going to pump my shoes out. They had no idea. I was wearing the pumps during the season already. Right. I loved the shoe. It wasn't a gimmick. I, I didn't like taping my ankles. So I would pump up my shoes for for comfort. Mm-hmm. I hated taping my I never taped my ankles in college. So I used that as a excuse to not get my ankles taped. Me too. But it worked for me. So when the when the contest happened, I was like, you know, I got I, I to do something that's different. Like, to get the fans behind me. Because it was in Charlotte. Rex Chapman and Kendall Gill was in a turn. It was in the contest, and they were both from playing for Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So nobody knew what I was going to do. I said I got to just do something to get the crowd on my side, or you know, uh, some some flair to it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that, and I, you know, that's why that's why I came up with it. And they they found out when I did it that I was doing that. Like what what is going on? So right. uh, you know, the rest is history. I'm still a Reebok athlete. You know, still. You know, my son, you know, you saw the, the mischief shoes. My son, man, mm-hmm. did a national commercial for them with the with the new shoes. My daughter, Lexi's a Reebok athlete. Nice. So they've done well, they've done well for us in, over the past 35 years. But, uh, you know, doing the pump, you know, you know, people still talk about it to this day, which is very, you know, people, Me not a lot something. of people can identify with a shoe. Yes. Me people still identify that shoe with me. And they come out with different shoes every year. So it's a very special moment. Reebok has, has been very, very, very uh, gracious to me and my family over the years uh, to make sure that I'm still involved with the company. Hey, did they give Shout you like a Shaq cabinet? Yeah, I was going to say, did, did, they give, yeah, did, they, yeah. did they give you a cabinet position? But, un- no, I got a real job. <laughs> 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 I'm working. What are you talking about? Like, you got no time for that. Shaq's the president. I got time. You know, listen, I, 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 I talk to those guys and, and you know, so they're going to do a great job doing yeah. that. And I'm, again, I'm involved with doing stuff during All Star Weekend and different launches of shoes and, mm-hmm. and, and supporting like people like Angel Reese, who has NIL deal, or mm-hmm. Justin Fields, who they signed for football. Uh, but for the basketball side with, with Shaq and AI, listen, those guys are different level icons than I am. You know, people know me because of the, the pump uh, and what I did with the shoe. And I sold a lot of shoes and put Reebok on the map at, at, at that time and level. Those guys took it to another level, mm-hmm. you know, Shaq and AI. So right. much respect to those guys, you know, being still involved with the company and, and, and obviously trying to obviously get the company back, you know, in basketball and changing the narrative of, you know, you know, all the different shoe companies out there. So, uh, you know, it just, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of shoes out there. It's a lot of companies. Plenty. You know, back then Plenty. it was Nike, Reebok, and, you know, Converse. maybe Puma. Converse, yeah. you know. Now, you know, new bounces back in, you know, so many different shoes back into it. You know, so many players. So, you know, to, to, to my only, my only claim to fame is that at one time, there was only three guys had their own shoe. Jordan, yeah. Barkley, yeah. Dee Brown. That was it. Yeah. That's my only claim to fame. Yeah. Now, again, those guys are different levels. Yeah, but still, <laughs> you had, I, you, I, you, you I, was I, able to forge your moment. <laughs> And to, to, to put yes, a ball on right. that idea, as a historian and as a, a, a dunker, like you mm-hmm. brought the showmanship back to the dunk contest. Before that yeah, time, yeah. it was just get your ism off, get yeah. the score, <laughs> yeah, go yeah. sit down. Nobody yeah. was turning yeah, yeah. to the crowd or, you know, adding, right. you know, some <laughs> yeah. showman shock elements. It was just, yeah, yeah. do you do your windmill, do Dominique, do the yeah, power right. dunk, and then they hold up the card and then you go sit down yeah. as a fan you opened up the imagination to the dunk contest back again because it was right. stale for a minute. Right. Now they done took it somewhere else now. You know what I mean? With some of the props and yeah, some of the stuff. They blame they yeah. they me now because they're like, you wanted brought all that marketing and external stuff to the dunk contest. I go, listen, it, it, that wasn't the reason I was doing it. 
Yeah. I was doing it because I wanted to win. Yeah, I wanted right. to get the crowd. And because you got to remember, back then, you know, Jelani, that was the event. That every was it. Player was there. Every celebrity was there. I, I got an old picture somewhere. And I'm, I'm looking on the thing. I'm like, is that Will Smith sitting there on the sideline? And he's a fresh prince and that person. And like, that was the event back then, like the marquee event. You know, Magic was there and Isaiah was there. Man, the, the, the know, brands was in George. there. PepsiCo was in yeah. there. Budweiser, like yeah, every everybody. big, every big yeah. head of state from all the brands was in there watching. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. So, so it's special to to be in that era where you know you felt like you you promoted the the, the obviously the NBA well, mm-hmm. but also you know you started a generation of guys thinking outside the box mm-hmm. in the contest. Like you said, it's it's taken off to a different level. Yeah. You know. The phone booths and the cars, the Timberlands. Yeah, we can we can use props. Like right. it was no props, no cars, no chairs, no people, mm. no hats, no nothing. It was just like straight dunk. So you had to be a little creative back then uh, in the nineties, no eighties. No cupcakes with the bir- with the birthday candle. <laughs> that guy Gerald Green. That was dope. That was guy Gerald. Yeah. So so kind of just wrapping up here. Appreciate your time so much. I know this has gone a little bit over, but uh, I want to kind of close the close the door on the Boston experience. So you end up losing in six to Detroit in 1991. You lose to Cleveland the next year. Bird retires. Mikhail retires. Reggie pass, uh, tragically passes. And you mentioned there was this perfect setup for this bridge of eras. That, that doesn't happen. And in the mid-90s, I would think that the team and the organization is probably just a little bit lost. Cause again, Reggie Lewis passes seven, eight years before that uh, Len bias passes. I want you to bring us inside the locker room or however you communicated with teammates. When Rick Pitino gets the job as coach, as GM, as president, and so much has been talked about this. Obviously Pitino tries to implement what he did at Kentucky full court presses, tape practices, a lot of running. (laughs) At what point did you realize that this was not going to (laughs) work? Well, let me, I'm going to go back to the, to me, the the end of the era when Reggie passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll start from there and work our way up. You know, when Reggie passed away, uh, like I said, I got brought into being the face of the franchise, being the, a, you know, one, a player. And listen, I had, after that, I had some really, really good years. I was like 16 and a half yep. points a game. You know, I had a chance to make the all-star game. You know, um, you know, I had some good years. We got to the playoffs and lost. You know, Chris Ford got fired. Um, then ML Carr came. Um, but those, my best basketball years were my worst mental years mm. because I, I was in a fog because of Reggie. Mm. I just couldn't, I couldn't get past. I think that year after you passed, I don't, I don't, Think I don't remember that year. Like I re- honestly, I, people people ask me like you don't remember. I say I don't remember a game. I remember playing. Mm-hmm. I remember doing very well. I remember having forty point games here and and forty points games here. But I don't remember the season. Um, and I I just felt empty and lost for a whole season because there's nothing you can prepare for losing a teammate out of the blue. A guy retiring, a guy gets traded. Okay, you can revamp. But a franchise, a franchise player, not every, every, every loss is important, but in the basketball schemes of the, the franchise, when you lose a player like that, that's a, that's an 18 year recovery period. It was a five to seven year recovery period when Lenny passed away. And then the Reggie came like, okay, woo, we got it back. And then he goes and he passes away. So all of a sudden all eyes on D Brown and 
it was tough. It was. It was. It was hard. Um, had some great years, um, and then obviously, you know, we got really bad. And a year, the year that we were so bad, I remember this year um, before Rick Pitino came. I think there were eight guys on that team that wasn't even in the NBA the next year. Huh. Mm. That's how. That's how. That's how bad our team was. Mm. Like, like as far as talent, because we were like. Uh, we weren't tanking. We just wasn't good. Tank for tank. Like, there, were, there was no tank for Duncan. Hold on. We, we didn't tank. We weren't that good. Like, it wasn't even a like, – the best we could play was losing. <laughs> like, we, 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 we really wasn't that good. And that's not a – listen, that's not a knock on those guys because I was part of it as well. I was part of it as well. So I take responsibility for losing games and, mm-hmm. and not being uh, uh, what the Celtics fans deserved at that, it, during the course of the, their history of – of sports, so I was the I was really the bridge of the old Celtics and the new Celtics. I was the last one left. Everybody was going. I was the only one to play with Bird, and then Mikhail and Paris, but and then obviously Reggie, and then you know the new Celtics with Tino got there and then started obviously revamping the team and organization and you know pushing Red out and 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 bringing all of the Kentucky guys in, mm-hmm. and that was tough. That, that was tough because I was there. And I understood the history. I lived the history. I was in the old Boston Garden. I used to spend time with Red and Sat Sanders and Heinsohn and Kuzi and Havlicek and, you know, uh, DJ and Casey Jones. I, mean, I could name guys that was at our practice every day. Every day, these guys were at practice every day. And for a guy like Rick to come in and really want to just wipe that out, that bothered me. Like, that, that bothered me more than anything. You don't just to. dismiss... You don't dismiss 50, 60 years of history because you're trying to change it to be what you are. You kind of and make keep it, it yours. Buck, and keep it a buck, dude. You yes. bringing these Kentucky yeah. girls in here. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it was it was very, very, to me, I felt insulted because I was a captain at that time. Mm. I felt a little bit insulted that we're just going to dismiss all these years of greatness. Uh, and Red Arbach, who's been a patriarch, of uh, this organization forever from day one, you're going to just kind of like push them aside. So he pushed that kind of stuff. So he, so, cause I think it's a little bit unclear. Maybe it's been written. Like red was very outspoken. He took, to his, this. T- he took, yeah, he took his title. So well, but, Red's always the president. But, but red was outspoken and saying, this is what I want to happen. This is, I want Patino. He's my guy. But was that just, do you think to yeah. try and be a good teammate? Quote unquote. I want you to look at the first two seasons of our, 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 our year Patino was there and see how many games Red was at. Red never missed a game. Never missed a game. And then once all the Patino stuff came, you know, I, I think it's not that he did so much push him out. He just didn't gather input from him. Mm. Or, mm-hmm. you, know, it's, it's a, you know, I don't want to say blessings because Red still was sharp. Red still had a basketball mind. Red still had contacts. Red still understood the game. Um, and it was kind of, like I said, it was just kind of a, a, a clear cut separation of old Celtics. And this is what we're doing now. Um, and that's hard. That's, that's, that's a very, very hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Maybe I just was stubborn. Maybe I didn't want to see it because I was part of the old regime. Um, uh, but it was, I mean, listen, it, it became, you know, and I'm sure you've heard of a lot of people. It was, it became a college environment. Like, you know, we, like you said, we taped for shoot arounds, you know, we couldn't wear our sweatpants when it was you know, cold. You know, we're pressed all the time. You know, we had three and a half hour practices. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 
you know, it was, you know, it was, it, it, it was, a, it was, it was a lot. Um, especially being an eight year, at that time I was an eight year veteran, you know, still part of the, you know, the Celtics and wanted to, stay. and I never thought, I never ever thought I would ever not play for the Celtics. I, I never, I thought I was going to be retired there. Um, and you know, again, I was the last one there. So I was, I knew my, the writing was on the wall. You know, like Johnny said, start bringing the Kentucky guys in, start changing the way he wanted to play. I uh, remember, and this is one thing about Rick Pitino, that dude knows how to coach. Mm-hmm. I would not, you talk about coach, you talk about knows the game, mm-hmm. a student, a mastermind. Like he was like a maniac coach. Mm-hmm. He was great. I, I will get, there's not a guy who was more prepared, more insightful, uh, had passion for the game than Rick Pitino. It was the other stuff that mm-hmm. people had problems with Rick with, you know, the ego or, you know, this is my team and you're just here to play for me. So there's a lot of other things that, that rub people the wrong way who are former Celtics or part of the organization. It, it, you know, the things that, you know, obviously transpired along the way mm-hmm. while he was there. Um, that was more than anything. It wasn't his back, basketball acumen. It was the other stuff that kind of rubbed people all the wrong way. And, you know, like, I, I, I remember, like, my last game ever in the ball, in, in, at that time it was the TD Garden, whatever they, call, they called it then. But my last home game, before I got traded, I ended up breaking Larry Bird's uh, three-point record, the most threes mm-hmm. in the game. I hit, I hit eight or nine. I forgot the number. Eight or nine in the game. And I broke his record. And that was the first time in about probably five or six years that people chanted my name. Deep, mm. deep. And I was like, man, I'm back. Like, I, I feel like I'd be a part of this organization. You know, you know, Rick is going to trust me. You know, I just broke Burr's record with the most threes in the game. We go to All-Star break. I come back and get traded. <laughs> so that was my last, literally my last game in Boston. So basically, he's like, he's like, thank you for for showing that you can still play, so I can get rid of your ass. Like, Man, so, facts. <laughs> no, but 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 no, but I remember, I remember when I got traded. We were on a road trip, you know, and uh, we were on a West Coast road trip. We played, I think, we played Sacramento. I didn't play. Then, but you remember, I just had a great game. Yeah, like I just scored thirty some points. I was like, you know, I'm back in rotation. You know, uh, we're on a road trip playing Sacramento, and I don't play. And Chauncey Billups don't play. And Chauncey's a rookie. Mm. You know, I gotta say, first rift, top, he, top, top my, ten pick, top, top three, three pick, top, top three, three pick. pick. That's our pick in the draft. Um, and Chauncey's like, man, we're not playing. I go, I go, Chauncey, we got traded. Mm. Like, no, we did. I go, I've been around a long time. Mm. We just got traded. So we get on the bus. We went to Vancouver at the time. The Grizzlies are in Vancouver still. So we get on the bus. You know, they're talking to Chauncey. They don't talk to me, but I kind of knew I'm, I'm part of this deal somewhere. I don't know where we're going. We get to the hotel in Vancouver. You know, wake up the next morning. There's a note under my door mm. says, "Don't come to, don't come to the bus. You've been traded." That was that's how I got that's how I got told I got traded after spending eight years with the Celtics mm. by Rick by by Rick Pitino and that group. That's the that's the part that hurt me. Was it a handwritten I, note? <laughs> I don't know who handwritten. I don't think Rick wrote it. Uh, Maybe he did. I don't know. Okay. I didn't save it. Damn, that's like <laughs> that. That's that's like yeah, the nineteen ninety. I would flush that right in the toilet. Yeah, that's like yeah. that's. And that was, that was, that was hurtful. That was yeah. a hurtful part about the whole thing. I respect Rick. I think, like I say, I think he's a great, great coach. You know, a, a great uh, steward for the game of stuff he's done in college, and you know, people talk about all the other stuff. But those type of things that you know, 
you remember, you, you know, do. I mean, I was, I was, you know, you know, 20, yeah. you know, eight year, eight year veteran in the league, you know, was captain of Celtics, you know, for five years, you know, after, after Larry and chief retired, I was the captain of the Celtics. So you feel like you, you earned a little bit more respect than that. So, um, that, that was tough. Like that was, that was a tough stretch. Um, you know, and the the nineties basically kind of gets forgotten. It really does. We, 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 it's funny. We talk about the 90s Celtics and it goes from Bird retiring, Brady passed away to Paul Pierce. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> nobody talks about the years in between because they're pretty lean, to be honest. So the crazy, I mean, the crazy thing, and we talked about this, is that Bias passes, Reggie passes, and Pierce comes like an inch away from dying. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. Is the curse yeah, of the small was, forwards was, in, in in Boston or something <laughs> that, like that? that yeah. That was different. That, yeah, that was a different type of almost situation. Kind of, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, different situation. But yeah, you said that, and it's 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 it's, 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 it's crazy because I didn't play with Paul. I got traded the year before Paul got there. I played with Antoine, um, and so that was obviously Rick Patino's first year when Antoine was there as a rookie. Uh, Antoine was special. Like he, you know. He was like the if he played his era right now, he would he would he would be great because mm-hmm. he was the first guy that that there was like shooting a ton of threes. A ton, like a ton of threes. A ton of threes. As, 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 a, as a power as a as a as a small four power four. But but yeah, that 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 segment between ninety three and ninety eight, that five years was a, a very difficult time in Celtics history. I I'm very honest with that. And I'm very honest about myself of what I tried to accomplish, you know. You know, I know it's you know, it's very skewed, but I hold every offensive record in the nineties in the Celtics history, like point scored, assists, mm. you know, steals, mm. you know, free throws. Like I hold a lot of the records in the nineties. Um, but again, it's a little skewed. Reggie passed away, Bird retired, Pearson get there to 98. 90. So, but I spent a lot of time, my first eight years of my career in Boston and my father's, my last five years, you know, um, wasn't the greatest as far as on the court. Um, but I did accomplish a lot of things off the court with my relationships with people, family, friends, you know, you know, community stuff like that, and building relationships there. Because I can still go back, I can still go back to Boston, and people still felt that I gave all I could give. For sure. Um, regardless of the the Rick Pitino situation, or right. you know, um, us being so bad, winning, I think we won 15 games the year before <laughs> we got in the in the the Duncan sweepstakes. Yeah. And we ended up getting three and five. It was Chauncey and Ron Mercer. Shut um, up, Ron. Both class yeah, of 95. Yeah. Yes, my guy Ron Mercer. So and you look at it, Chauncey Bill's a third pick in the draft. Ended up being a world champion, MVP. Now he's coaching the Portland Trailblazers, you know. I got a chance to be around him a lot, you know, you know, after his career, um, as well. Like, you know, you love those stories. You know, you love those stories. You know, you know, so it wasn't all bad. You know, it wasn't all bad. You gotta you gotta look at it and kind of laugh sometimes. I, yes, I guess exactly. I guess getting getting uh, traded from a handwritten note is probably like the 1998 version of, of getting broken up by text or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm find out on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, I found on social media I got traded. That yeah, handwritten thing. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Jelani uh, informed me that you, I guess, shortly after you retired, were the uh, you were the head coach and general manager of a D League team. And I guess was that then, yeah. like Patino? Obviously, he wasn't just the coach; he was the GM, the president. Is that? Physic is it? It I don't. I think it's maybe worked like two or three times ever 
where yeah. a coach was the also the the front office decision maker and had success. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of examples where it didn't go well. Patino being one of them. Right. Like you, you yeah. sat in that chair and are one of the only people mm. that did. Like, is that yeah. Yeah. is it possible to succeed in that position, or do you have to be like a Pat Riley like? figure to to have any success because it, it doesn't seem like an easy job and yeah. you spoke a lot yeah. about like you know the difficulties going from player to front office but mm-hmm. wearing both of those hats where you're the coach yeah. and you're the person that can trade you that night right. um is well, all right yeah i mean it was yeah remember it was a, for for a time it was a trend mm-hmm. like that was kind of like the 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 asking price for great coaches mm-hmm. i want i want you know that was that was it you want me i want to be able to who said it? I want to be able to buy the groceries too. Nice. And that was it. Now I'm gonna bring my own people in. I'll be the final decision maker. Mm-hmm. I'll have people under me doing all the, the leg work and all that stuff because I got a coach. Nowadays you can't do that. It's just too many things going on. Right. Um with, with analytics, with health and wellness, right. uh uh, you know, with, with the media, things like that. It you see a lot of teams have separated that. There's not I don't think there's anybody in the NBA that does that anymore. Uh, I think Pop a little bit does it, but there's not there's really no head coach final decision maker in an nba no more because it's just a lot of stuff going on and i think quinn snyder because, has some type of deal where he has he's not the yeah, gm but he has some type of but land but landry's a gm landry feels exactly landry yeah. makes a decision exactly. you know and and you know it's not like okay you know i'm the president and head coach or it's, yeah. it's not that anymore That's because right. when you're a coach I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's hard because you're, you're, you're serving two masters. When you're the coach, you got to worry about now. I got to win. I don't worry about the five-year plan. I'm not worried about cost of production and production over cost and trade assets and, you know, uh, you know, projecting for the 25 draft or the 26 draft. I got, I need players now. So as a coach, am I going to sacrifice my future to win now to keep my head coaching job? Or am I going to be a G, GM and, and, when we say keep all the powder in the keg so I can make sure our, our we don't I don't drain our future assets for the organization. You can't do both. Right. It's it, 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 it's impossible to think both ways. So uh you know, I think that you know, that kind of got dismissed a lot because people started looking at it like, wait a minute, are you making the decision because you're trying to win now and all of a sudden you're trading all our future draft picks, all our young players trying trying to get guys who can win now. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I try to, and you and, and I just thought about this. It kind of reminds me of the transfer port in college. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna get the young players. I'm gonna get these transfer guys who I know can play now. I'm gonna sacrifice these young high school guys or freshmen or sophomores because I need this graduate player or this transfer guy to help me win now. Yep. It's I'm almost gonna the, almost I'm gonna go get the 23 year old with two kids. <laughs> over, over the the two kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's been it. That's what happened back then. Like, you know what? I ain't got time to develop these young guys, yeah. you know, like I got to win now. So I got the power to make these decisions to trade assets, to eat up my cap space, to get these guys, because uh, I I need to win now, but I have the power to make those decisions. So that's a, that's a tough thing. You don't think you ever see that again anymore, yeah. uh, just because of how, and, and the other thing is, is how big the game has gotten too. Now you got international players. It's so global now, you know, you've got, you know, uh, these high school independent schools, you got OTE, mm-hmm. you've got the G League now. Like you didn't have all that stuff before. Like there's a lot of different people that you gotta keep eyes on and and tabs on and reports on. I mean, I did that when I was at the Clippers in the front office, 
you know, I, I was GM of the G League team, but I also oversaw our evaluation and scouting mm. stuff. Uh, and that was a full-time job. Like that was a full-time, I was on the, I was on the road 25 days out of the month. And that had nothing to do with coaching. I was never on the court. This was just strictly development of our G League players and making sure we scouted and evaluated our, our players and future players that could do that. So that's, uh, it's a lot. Uh, and, you know, you, it, it's tough. Co- coaching's hard enough already, as you can tell, with what's going on in the climate of guys facts. getting fired, yep. losing their jobs. It, it, ain't, it ain't easy being a coach now. You better off being a player coach, if anything. You might be able to get the player coach <laughs> the off. Bill Russell joint. Yeah, you could be Russell able to get joint. the Bill Russell joint off better than the front office joint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you ain't lying. Uh, that's funny. Well, this was a uh, – I mean, like you said, you are the only player that can speak to the end of that Larry Bird era into the 90s and the Rick Patino. So it was a privilege talking yeah. to you. Uh, we really appreciate the time. We do have one last final uh, – or I have one last final kind of question – uh, you get traded in that Chauncey Billups trade and you go to Toronto. We talked about a couple weeks ago, and it's been kind of circulating the news, the fact that Vince Carter doesn't have his jersey retired in Toronto. He's spoken yeah. about how influential guys like you and Charles Oakley were mm-hmm. to him when he arrived in Toronto. Jelani also played there in 03, so he saw that. Um, can you believe that Vince Carter doesn't have his jersey retired? And is that – you know, is that, is that just an injustice to the game that Air Canada doesn't have 15 hanging in the rafters of yeah, the Air Canada? Uh, I think it's a time thing. I mean, mm. I think once he retired, because you remember, Vince played for a long time. He sure I mean, did. He basically retired, what, two years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. usually, I mean, I mean, let's, 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 let's take a step back. I mean, they're just retiring Shaq's jersey in Orlando. Yeah. You know, he's the first jersey being retired uh, in Magic history, and I played for the Magic. Um, these guys like Dwight Howard and, and Trid and, and Penny and Grady and maybe Penny that deserve probably get their jersey retired too. But with Vince, it's different because he galvanized a country, not a city, not a country. Yeah. And I was there. I remember getting traded there, um, and Tracy McGrady was a rookie, and we were playing in old the, the Sky Dome. We didn't play in, and it was crazy. Um, fans didn't know how to cheer. We would be shooting free throws, and they were banging the the, 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 the thunder sticks while we were shooting free throws. I tell them, no, 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 no. You do that when they're shooting, not us. So it was an education process of basketball in Canada when we got there. Uh, me, Charles Oakley, Dale, Dale Curry, Muggsy Bogues, Antonio Davis. Like We had some veterans, and all we cared about was winning. So when Vets got there the next year, uh, my second year there, we saw this, like, man, we got these two young dudes that are very special. And, uh, like, people started, like, in Canada, like, hockey still is still the number one sport, mm-hmm. but people started, like, watching these two, like, these dudes are different. They're special. Uh, and you look at all the Canadian players after, during that era when they were young, that has come through because of Vince Carter, Vince Carter's influence on it, you know, you know, Shea. You know, Nick Stauskas, Murray, you know, Murray, uh, Murray, Wiggins, Andrew Wiggins, Barrett, mm-hmm. you know, Barrett, uh, Like, there's so many guys that say, "I got into basketball because of Vince Carter." They'll they'll say it. I mean, it's not not because of LeBron James or Michael right. Jordan or or you know this guy. They would say specifically Vince Carter. So he's done a lot of things. You know, you, you hate the, the the bad breakups, 
that happens when great players leave teams. It's always, I've never seen a bad, a great player leave a team and everybody's like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Think about Thanks. it. It never happens for Thanks. great players. Uh, hopefully you, you go back and, and mend fences. I think they've done that. Um, but, yes, he should be the first player to have his jersey retired. Again, he just kind of retired, so they might want to let everything kind of, you know, calm down where he's away from the game. Mm-hmm. He's doing a lot of telecast. He has his VC podcast and things like that. So he's been doing a lot of things off the court. Um, but, yeah, he should be the first. It shouldn't be a no-brainer. It should yeah. be a no-brainer. Who's the first person to get their, their jersey retired in Toronto? Uh, it should be Vince Carter. Hands I down. Think- I think you hit on it. I think the process has been sped up recently, you know what I mean, as Mm -hmm. opposed to when it was, when the Jersey retirement was in the 90s and, you know, the 80s. It took a minute. You know, now we see a couple players, you know, for for various reasons, get their Jersey retired, you know, a little bit faster. But I like what you said there. It takes a minute. Just, you know, Vince paid for 47 years. You know, Ah. (laughs) he's just not. I'm going to tell you something funny. I I, I reflect back on this. The funniest thing. You gotta remember when I played, it was a lot of. When I say it was old league, so a lot of guys were kind of retiring. Mm-hmm. I think I've I have the record for the most retirement ceremonies in NBA history because huh. I went through. Because you gotta remember, it was the Lakers Celtics. So at the time, all those guys were retiring. So I went through all. Cat. I went through the Bird. Yeah, I went through. Hold on, hold on. I went through. No, I went through Magic. Uh, uh, who else got retired at the time? I think Worthy. Mm-hmm. There's about three guys from the Lakers that got retired. We were always just the team that they played because of the Celtics. Mm-hmm. And then I remember being the Celtics, I got, I was there with, I was there, Bird, Parrish, DJ, Reggie, Cedric Maxwell, uh, like like six. I've been through nine retirement jerseys in about a ten year span of my career, right. you know. And we're still trying to wait for Shaq to done retired in my and with the Magic, uh, Vince in, in, in Toronto. You know, uh, you know. Hopefully that comes soon. So it's it's just kind of funny. Haslam just got his number retired. He retired yeah. like three days ago. Yeah. You know, well deserved. Well deserved. No, no question. He deserves his number retired because he's he's the OG for Miami. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it all depends on to me. It all depends on the franchise and 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 again those the bad blood and the breakup um, of how those guys get their, their their jersey retired. I miss the farewell tours. Remember when, like, Kareem, and like oh, you said, yeah. you was oh, going to retire yeah. oh, in that yeah. whole year. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> the visiting city gave you a gift. You know what I mean? Yeah, I missed the yeah. bring back the farewell yeah. tour. They don't do that no more. I think D-Wade Kobe had a little had one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then every, I think every, everyone makes fun of Paul Pierce for Draymond saying that he's not Kobe. He's not going to get a farewell tour. <laughs> Poor P. P well, deserved one. Is, guys don't know when they, yeah, he did. Guys don't know when they're going to retire. That's another thing. You know, like. Mm, I might have one more good year in me. Mm-hmm. Then you get there to training camp time, like, uh, well, maybe not. So, right. uh, you know, guys, sometimes, you know, like, you know when you're going to retire, sometimes you're like, you know what? It just, you know, you kind of want to just, just fade, like you said, fade into the sunset and just keep it moving. Hmm. Right. Well, D, thank you for your time. This was amazing. Uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Jacksonville University will keep your yes. tabs out. Yep. Um, and yep. have a good one, man. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.